You don't have to go to Mars to uh, look at alien life forms. They're, they're developing right next to us. And the astonishing thing is that we're merging with them. Sounds scary, like a science fiction book. Today's speaker, Dr. Arthur Miller, came back to speak with us about artificial superintelligence. These machines that will be smarter than humans. What we need to do if machines are going to be pervasive in so many ways. And the biggest question, can machine be creative? All of these questions in today's episode. Let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for coming back. My name is Nir and I'm the founder of the Artian, a creative consultancy and training company that applies an art mindset in business environment. Why? Because art has a transformative power to shift mindset and develop skills. And I'm talking business skills. If you want to learn how we do it, check our website www.theartian.com. Today's speaker, Dr. Arthur Miller, was already a guest on our show. If you haven't had the chance to listen to the previous show, go and check it at the beginning of this season. His scientific background and his passion for the arts have led him into a unique field of research and exploration. I wanted to invite him for another episode because his focus in recent years has been AI, art, and creativity. That is a question that I'm interested in. Can a machine be creative? If yes, how? What is the role of us, the humans, if machines can be better than us? This is an eye-opening conversation that I'm positive you're going to learn few new insights. Hey, Artu, welcome to the Artian Podcast. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here again, Nir. Artu, you were our guest uh, in the past, uh, and we talked about art and science and creativity and Picasso and Einstein. And last time, we didn't even have the chance to dive deep into your recent book, The Artist in the Machine, The World of AI, Power, Creativity. And with all the questions I have about this topic, I realized we must have a separate episode for this topic only. So first of all, thank you for joining again. Maybe for the people that haven't had the chance to listen to our previous podcast, you can briefly introduce what are you doing, who you are? I'm presently writing on uh, AI and creativity and focusing on AI-created uh, art, literature, and music with the, the main impetus, main thrust of my work towards investigating creative machines, what it means for a machine to be creative. Okay, so first question, can machine be creative? Absolutely. <laughs> Explain me why. Uh, yes, certainly machines can be creative. They can produce work that go beyond their database and their algorithms. And, so, and machines have already shown glimmers of creativity when running algorithms like AlphaGo, uh, DeepDream, and generative adversarial networks. Let me say a few words about them. There was this heavy sadness over that whole floor. You could feel it during the game. I felt it during the game. And uh, I'm leaving the commentary room to go to the press conference. AlphaGo was uh, invented at DeepMind in London. And in 2016, it trounced a highly regarded Go master named Lee Sedol. At that point, everyone agreed 
that the venerable game of Go, 2,500 years old, had been cracked by a machine. And that was a momentous event in AI. And indeed, the Chinese consider it to have been their Sputnik moment. Now, uh, AlphaGo learned, that is to say, taught itself how to play Go by studying 30 million board positions from games played by Go masters, and then reinforcing that knowledge by playing against itself millions of times. That's called machine learning. AlphaGo made many uh, extraordinary moves, but the one that everyone remembers is move number 37 from the second of the five-game match. That's Ooh. a very surprising move. I thought, I, thought it was, I thought it was a mistake. When I see this move, for me, it's just a big shock. What? Normally, human, we never play this one because it's bad. It's just bad. We don't know why. It's bad. But it's a little bit high. Yeah? It's fifth line. Normally, you don't make a shoulder hit on the fifth line. Um, so coming on top of a fourth line zone is really unusual. Yeah, that's an exciting move. Mm -hmm. I, I think we've seen an original move here. That's the kind of move uh, that, you, that you play go for. Hey. Interesting stuff. This fifth line shoulder hit. Is that, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Um, I don't really know if it's a good or bad move at this point. The professional commentators almost unanimously said that not a single human player would have chosen move 37. So I actually had to poke around in AlphaGo to see what AlphaGo thought. And AlphaGo actually agreed with that assessment. AlphaGo said there was a one in 10,000 probability that move 37 would have been played by a human player. So it knew that this was an extremely unlikely move. It went beyond its human guide and it came up with something new and, and creative and different. It was a move that you were not supposed to make at that point in a Go game, and indeed had never been made before for over 2,000 years. And indeed, uh, Lee Sedol, the human that AlphaGo was playing against, and the AlphaGo team thought the, thought the machine had hit a glitch, but then they realized it was a killer move. And indeed, it turns out that the machine had calculated that the odds of a human being making that move were 1 in 10,000, and that's more than a glimmer of creativity. Now, Deep Dream is an algorithm that allows, the first algorithm that allows artificial neural network to create uh, truly astounding works of art. It allowed, Deep Dream allows you to see what a machine sees when it's analyzing an image. For example, the first image that was analyzed with Deep Dream is that of, a, of an adorable kitten against a verdant background. And the image was inserted, was fed into the machine and then the analysis was stopped at a certain layer of, uh, at a layer of neurons inside the machine. And then the inventor asked the machine, what do you see at that point? And what, what the machine saw was surreal, extraordinary, amazing. Everybody thought that what the machine saw at an intermediate point in its analysis would be some approximation of the target image. Instead, the machine saw some cat-like thing, sometimes called a monster beast, uh, with two additional eyes on its forehead, two eyes on its haunches, canine attributes distributed over its body, and the green, the verdant green background was a mo the machine saw as a mosaic with spiders crawling on it. And then AI artists uh, conceived of an, of an art form based on Deep Dream, which is still being used today. Let me define what an AI artist is. An AI artist is somebody, is the new breed of artist. An AI artist... Uh, creates with code. An AI artist is technologist 
and artists rolled into one. The deep dream art is images. It's, it's made up of images that go way beyond the machine's database, which is the ImageNet database made up of over 14 million images of everything under the sun. And in going beyond this database, that's what I mean by a machine being creative. When we go beyond, when we produce something that goes beyond the material we have to work with, we call that creativity. Because there's no reason why we cannot call attribute creativity to a machine as well. Because there's no reason why creativity should be an attribute reserved only for us. Uh, a generative adversarial network is made up of two networks. A generated network that creates images from nothing, that is to say noise, and a discriminatory network which uh, assesses whether the image is true or not relative to what's in the machine's database. So in the first creation from nothing or from noise, these images will be returned by, by the, the discriminatory network. And soon the generated network builds up a basis, images, from which it creates further images. But those images in its memory are not of the world in which we live. And so the generated network will be dreaming, imagining images of a world beyond the world in which we live in. So just to make sure I understand, every step, the machine creates new images and take those images and create new images and take those images and create new images. Yes, it will create new images, which ascends to the discriminatory network, which then sends those images back to the generator network. Until it kind of become distorted image? Actually, no, actually, until the images that the generator network creates are very close to the true images. But we want to grab them at a time when these images are not the same thing. As a matter of fact, what you can do is cut the connection between the two networks. And then the generator network creates really weird stuff. So again, images that we would not have imagined if these machines did not exist. So I have a question for you. First of all, if I can summarize it, what you're saying, machine can be creative. That's a fact. Second of all, machine is creative when it goes beyond the database. So my question for you is, What's the difference between human creativity and machine creativity? Okay, there are lots of differences right now. Yes, when I ask the question, can machines be truly creative? Well, right now they can't. Why? Because while they create art, it is a human that has to set the process into motion. There are machines that set themselves into motion in, in a primitive way. It's, it's, a, it's a glimmer. But right now, the human has to be behind it. Right now, there is collaborations between humans and machines. But what the question I ask in my book, and I'd have explored beyond the book, is whether machines can have human characteristics of creativity and so be creative like us. That's the big issue. In other words, can machines have emotions and consciousness and volition? Can machines have those, uh, these emotions? Yes, they can. They will in the future. And they can because machines eventually be fluent in a language, say in English. And so they will be comfortable with all the nuances and tropes. And then the machine will be able to truly read the web and, and accumulate more knowledge than we can in a lifetime. And it is along these lines that the machine can convince itself and us it has acquired such experiences that seem to be essential to creativity, such as love, hate, anger, and so on. And then we will wire up machines with complex systems of sensors, regulatory mechanisms, and communication pathways by means of which they will evolve a set of emotions that are duplicates of ours. In a second, I want to ask you about our perception of machines, because what you describe can be daunting and in a way even scary. But 
few years back in our art and technology series, we hosted two poets. One is traditional writing poets, a very dear friend of mine, Shimon Adaf, and another artist that work with algorithm Rana Das. And in this conversation, Shimon described a situation when a woman went to the past, she didn't have a space, she got frustrated and she was so angry. And he wrote a poem about this frustration. While I was working, I was taking the bus and there was, there was an old woman trying to get to the bus and the, uh, the bus driver just, um, just, he saw her. I, I, saw, I, saw, I saw him seeing her and he just kept going and then he stopped because some people in the bus uh, cried out. And, and she was just hitting the, uh, she was very, very angry and she was hitting the, uh, the doors and then she was cursing everyone when she, when she uh, went up. And, and when she passed by me, I felt like part of her, her rage is kind of flowing out of her and just entering me in a way that it was occupying me, and I was possessed by her rage. And, and I was pondering this rage, and I was thinking about how do I put it in words, because as I was saying, poetry is about taking the knowledge and turn it into experience. I do, how do I turn it back into experience, real experience for, for me, for others? The question was, can machine understand this frustration of the other person? Because he, as a human, can understand it. But can machine understand this frustration? My answer to questions like that is yes in the future. Actually, there is a field now called affective computing, which is a really hot research field. Right now, the, they are training machines to recognize human emotions. So yes, machines will be able to recognize the emotions and maybe be able to reply to the person as well, calming them down. So... If I understand you correctly, what you are saying is also that machine will be able to empathize with us and understand us. Well, right now it can do it in a very primitive way, but it, certainly in the future, it will be able to do it in a way that is uh, human. By that time, it's very important to keep in mind that by the time the, this work will be done, this will be maybe, uh, it, it is experts in the field in polls that are taken say that it is, there's a 90% chance by the end of this century, that there will be artificial general intelligence. In other words, that machines will be as smart as us. Going beyond that, there will be machines which will be much smarter than us. That's the age of artificial superintelligence. It's not scary for you to know that machine will be smarter than humans? Well, no, because this will occur, like artificial general intelligence, when they're as smart as us, that will occur, say, almost 100 years from now. Changes are occurring extremely rapidly in people faster than the, than the Darwinian rate of change, which is millions of years. Right now, it's five years, 10 years, when we'll have chips in our head, which will connect us with the net, and uh, we'll have neural nets on us, neural lace on us, which will be lace which will be laid over our brain. Some drastic surgery required, <laughs> however. And that will hook us up with the web. We'll have all knowledge at our disposal, all means of reasoning at our disposal, too. So when we talk about the future, we talk about humans in another way because we are merging with machines. And in the age of artificial superintelligence, I mean, uh, are we going to be relegated to being household pets? But as uh, some dystopian scenarios uh, assert, well, again, that's a very complicated question, because what it means to be a human being by that time will be drastically different. We will be merging with machines, which actually uh, may not be a bad idea. It may be the path for survival of the human race, because uh, machines can look into the future see problems and immediately deal with them. And clearly, we don't seem to be very good at that. 
It's very interesting what you're saying, because I want to ask you, in our last podcast, we actually spoke about the importance of imagination and how Einstein and other scientists used imagination like artists to actually get into discoveries. And what I'm interested to know is that if artificial intelligence can actually know the future, um, where is the role of imagination? I mean, is this... Well, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't know the future. Well, okay, I said it, it could look into the future. You know, look into the future to see way, the way problems are going, to see the way the world is going. Not the imagination world, but the, the physical world, climate problems and things of that sort. That's what I meant by machines looking into the future. Okay, so there is a little bit of over here for me as a human that we still have a role because one of the things that I'm interested to hear from you is the, what is the role of humans in this kind of era when you have machines, super intelligent machines that can project what will happen in the future, offer solutions, um, be smart as us. You are already saying that they are creative, maybe not like us, but they are creative in their own way. The potential for unlimited creativity. Our creativity is limited because uh, the size of our brain is limited by our head. But that can be increased by ins inserting chips, for example. And also, right now, the way we can deal with machines becoming smarter and smarter is to collaborate with them. There are some very interesting uh, collaborations where uh, machine and human bootstrap each other's creativity. For example, there is uh, the algorithm called Continuator, which is a very nice example of that on my book's website, actually. Everybody should take a look at it. My book too. We will add the link to on the show notes to your uh, website so people can make sure to see it. Where a piano player is improvising and his notes are fed to continuator, which parses them into phrases. And then these phrases are sent to a, a phrase analyzer, which looks for patterns. And it's along these lines that continuator pretty much instantaneously creates an improvisation in response to the musician's improvisation. Improvisation is usually considered to be a conversation between a musician and a musical instrument. Here's a conversation between a musician and an AI. What artists can also do, actually, is, is to uh, train a generative adversarial network on their own artworks and then have it turn out art, and it will more or less be the work of the human artist. But there may well be some, something added in there. And so the human artist will have his uh, creativity sort of jigged it in that sense. Now, a, a very nice example that came out after my book was published is called GPT-3, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3. Three stands for, the three designates that it's the, the third generation in this device. And GPT-3 is the most advanced language processor to date. It produces human-like, it produces human-like text. And what's interesting here, it can do a number of things. One of the things it can do is you can, a, a writer can use as a seeding text the paragraph where he's stuck, where he can't proceed. And then GPT-3 will, will generate text, which can be of help to him. It's very interesting. I see this conversation so exciting. Um, before we continue, let's take a short break. Would you like to work personally with Nier to develop and grow your artistic mindset? At the Artian, we work with organizations and individuals to achieve greater success. Through our art-based leadership sales and innovation training, we show organizations that there is another way of thinking and another possibility of acting. Visit us at www.theartian.com. That is T-H-E-A-R-T-I-A-N.com to learn more. 
Arthur, I asked you before about the role of human creativity. You mentioned the GPT-3 and I'm wondering, and you talked about it, what are the three types of artists that we have today? Because I have more questions for you about it. And maybe I will go back before that and ask you, you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast is that the machines still need the artist at the beginning. So my question, if the artist is the one that programmed the machine, who is the creator? Well, first of all, let me talk about the three sorts of artists. I think in the future, there'll be three sorts of artists. The traditional artists working away with the easels and paints. And the second one is artists working with machines. And then eventually in the future, there'll be machines working alone, producing art that we presently cannot even imagine. Humans program machines. And there is this issue of the relationship between the programmer and the machine. And, and that story comes to mind here of Mozart and his father. Why? Mozart's father taught his son the rules of composition, but we don't attribute the son's music to the father. So it's interesting to keep in mind this relationship between programmer and machine. In fact, in the early days, going back to Bell Labs, a scientist at Bell Labs by the name of A. Michael Knoll, who coined the term computer art, tried to patent one of his artworks. And the patent clerk at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., in the United States, refused, <laughs> saying that this is nonsense. Machines are only number crunches, which they were in 1965. But then Noel reminded the patent clerk that he was the one, Noel was the one who wrote the program. Uh, so the patent clerk said, fine, there is a, a human being behind it. And right now, a very viable uh, field of law is cyber law. And cyber lawyers refuse to admit that machines can be creative. They will, they can only, you want to give a patent for something, it has to be to a human. The human artist. In art, in human art, it's easy. The human artist is the originator. Who is the originator in, uh, in AI art? Well, there's a chain of ownership here that has to be considered. Who owns the data? Who owns the algorithm? Then there's the programmer. How different is the output from the input? And who owns the machine? And this will only be resolved when machines have emotion, volition, and consciousness, and so they can be truly artists in their own right. They can then also assess their work. So... You know, I want to kind of uh, continue this discussion because it's very, very interesting about you raising a lot of topics that invite questions around ownership, around collaboration, around the creativity. And one of the things that I often encounter when I speak with artists is that for artists, it's not either or. It's not either human or machine. It's end. It's the human and the machine. And they are always talking about the collaboration. And there are many artists that work in collaboration with technology and with robots and algorithms. And I think that what maybe capture my interest or open my eyes to see it differently is what Lee Sidol said at the end of the movie AlphaGo when he actually says that the machine made him now a better player because the machine actually exposed him to a new possibilities and creative ways to play the game. What are your thoughts on that? And machine actually making us better artists than well, I, 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 cert I certainly agree with Lee and artists who think along those lines because an awful lot of artists don't. They consider the machine a tool, like paint in the can. A lot of people in AI, in AI art, literature, and music think along those lines too. But there are those who don't. For example, Hod Lipson, who is a... Uh, computer scientist and uh, AI artist at Columbia University, always signs off the work he does with his art bots, uh, with his name and the art bot's name as well. And there also, there's this issue of, that was brought up recently, whether you should acknowledge 
if you're a writer, whether you should acknowledge these editing programs like Scrivener and Pro Writing Aid, which just you know make sure that your grammar is okay. You don't really have to acknowledge them. But on the other hand, writers uh, like myself do acknowledge copy editors, copy editors' input. So there's no reason. So in this age of AI, one should give a nod to Scrivener and Pro Writing Aid. But things like GPT-3, that's a whole other kettle of fish because they do provide, they can provide creative help in blessing you out of writer's block. So CPT-3 does deserve mention. And indeed, writers are giving it. I've heard they will be giving it mention. And there is a, uh, I forgot what the writer's name is, who just wrote something and is co-authored with GPT-3. So it's great because I want to ask you some examples. And you already mentioned example in uh, writing about uh, GPT. But can you give us more examples for projects that you found interesting while writing this book, maybe around painting, maybe around the music? Yes, in music, there is a flow machine which was, was an algorithm invented by Francois Pache, who is right, right now directs Spotify's creative technology research program in Paris. And that's a machine that is uh, jam-packed with over 50,000 musical scores and rules for composing music. And a musician who is suffering block can put in, the, could in, put in some bars and uh, feed the machine those bars. And then the machine will suggest how to proceed from there. So they are doing it right now in Spotify, kind of experimenting with how this can help artists. Imp- That's right. Okay. So this is an example in music. What's happening in a painting? Like the traditional that we know, what's happening in creation of painting or other topics like this, like drawing? Well, in drawing, uh, an artist can uh, feed a machine with some of his own work and then have the machine produce artwork. Uh, most of that artwork will be similar to the artist's work, but there may be one piece that will be different and will give an artist a clue to how to move on from there. I mean, painting and painting methods have been changed by AI. Painters paint differently now. Those who are experimenters, I've, I've met those who were just horrified at this whole thing. So, you know, it's kind of um, interesting question because last year, I think it was that a painting by an AI was sold in Christie's or Sotheby's, I don't remember who, uh, for $500,000, uh, $432,000. It was incredible. $432,000 US dollars for an artwork by an AI. How should we treat this type of thing? Do you think people will start to collect artworks by a machine? What will be the emotional connection if you know that it was created by machine? Well, that piece of artwork, that was, I, I think, a... Uh... A freak occurrence. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was done in a not very imaginative way. It was standard GAN or Genitive Adversarial Networks uh, technique and had a, had a nice frame on it, too. It was clever. Uh, Mario Klingemann, a few months later, who I mentioned previously, sold a painting for $50,000 at Sotheby's. I was there when it was sold. These works are conversation pieces for your living room. Just like a lot of uh, electronic art is a conversation piece, you're invited to touch electronic art. And the same thing uh, with some of this work, especially with the work that Klingemann sold. It's, it's a very interesting installation. He's also your favorite artist, no? Yes, that's right. He's my favorite. Why, why, why is your, uh, your favorite AI artist, even though it's a human working with an AI? So it's interesting. It is, yeah. Well, Mario is always on the cutting edge. And he's an excellent ambassador of AI art, too. And in fact, uh, just now, he has an exhibit in the windows of Harrods in London, 
on what future on what the fashion will, will be like in, in the future what other disciplines of art did you cover in your book yes AI created art music and literature yes there are several uh, projects and uh, when I began to write my book I knew a lot about AI created art AI created music but that not much about AI created literature and I worried will there be enough to fill up a chapter and indeed there was more than that it's the last the final frontier and that AI literature involves all of the all of the intelligences and there's some extremely interesting work being done in AI poetry for example investigating the semantic space the space of words locating in that space words that we've never encountered before words that will have a meaning that it's almost like colonizing these these by should we bring them into existence that line of poetry is extremely interesting to me and of course there is literature in GPT3 and what's interesting with GPT3 also is that there's with artificial neural networks is numbers all the way down So at the bottom there's a democracy of numbers. There are numbers that encode paintings, numbers that encode music, numbers that encode literature. And there is no reason why sometime in the future you can't sculpt with words, make a sculpture with words, make a sculpture with musical notes, turn Les Demoiselles d'Avignon into a symphony. The, the world of AI is, is unlimited. I don't know if, you've, if to be scared of it, to be excited of it, I don't know, just when you hear... The super intelligence machines that you are talking about, I always ask myself, what is the role of a human? Because it's kind of bring me to my next question. I think it was in 2013 that there was um, a very well-known uh, research that came out of Oxford University. And in this research, they wanted to see how many of the jobs in the US are likely to be replaced by machine. And they found that almost... 50%, it was, the number was 47%. But then when they, they did a follow-up research in the UK, they saw that actually only 35 of jobs are at risk of being replaced by machine because the UK has more creative jobs. Now, the research central claim is that creativity is a barrier between machines and you when you compete on a job. And I'm wondering how what you discovered about AI and creativity actually can play role over here. If the only competitive advantage so-called that people have is the ability to be creative, think in original way on what they are doing, how they will be able to face machine that actually think faster, quicker, and now in a more creative way. That's a big question <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, certain lots of different surveys out now on the what the job market will be like a lot of them now are pointing to the 2030s in which there will be probably 50 percent unemployment it's a way to answer your question in a, in a non-linear way one of the ways to deal with creative machines which can deal with more data than we can is to uh, collaborate with them work with them and that's being done actually with the uh, COVID-19 research where there are teams of scientists working with uh, artificial neural networks and some of them are equipped with uh, algorithms like uh, semantic scholar which have been invented at the Allen Institute that can look for connections among over 200 million scientific papers I mean here medical scientific papers and these doctors working with machines the doctors come up can come up with hypotheses that are far wider and deeper than they could if they work worked by themselves. But looking at, um, at occupations, I mean, AI is affecting all occupations. It's hollowing out the middle class. 
I mean, truck drivers will be gone, and white collar jobs also are being affected. What one should go for, look at, if you're looking into the future, is uh, avoid the what jobs, W H A T, what jobs, those are automatic. Go for the why jobs. What does it mean, the why jobs? I love it. I love the idea, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> the why jobs are the, the creative jobs. The why jobs will, be, will eventually be jobs like in, in AI. Even programming will be gone because it turns out that GPT-3 can also program itself. So machines will be programming themselves. And then, of course, machines will be producing themselves also. We will not be producing them any longer. And machines will look like us, as in Blade Runner and uh, Replicons. Even white-collar jobs such as lawyers, radiologists, AIs can read radiograms better than... Better than yeah, that's already happening like in the last few years. Bookkeepers, accountants, doctors will be replaced. Surgeons will be replaced. And there'll be uh, nanobots inserted into your body that will clean out whatever, whatever your problem is. And this will mean great changes in society also because uh, we define ourselves by our jobs right now. Yeah. Say, hi, I'm Arthur Miller. I write, I write books, something like that. Uh, <laughs> what are you going to do after that? They'll have to be guaranteed basic income. People have to be creative. Creativity will be an industry in that. People have to think about doing something with their free time. But generally, the, the way to deal with this creativity gap, right now, machines are, are not that much more creative than us, but they certainly will get there by the end of, by the end of the century, maybe in the next 10 years, who knows? Maybe an Einstein will come along for artificial intelligence and, and come up with some incredible computer architecture, which will make machines incredibly creative. And open up whole new vistas. So it's kind of take me to our last podcast when we talk about creativity. And if I hear you correct, I mean, one of the things that can save us is to be more creative. And one of the things we discussed in our last podcast is about what is creativity and what is your theory of creativity. And what I want to ask is that can someone actually cultivate this creativity for themselves in order to be able to be relevant in a job market that will invite so many changes by an AI? Well, I think what you would need is an AI to help you. To become more creative. Collaborate with an AI. It brings your creativity up. And, and probably a chip in your head won't, won't, uh, you know, wouldn't hurt either. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's coming down the line. You know, to hook you up with the web, so you have a lot of knowledge at your disposal and reasoning methods also that will increase your reasoning. So basically, one of the recommendations that you give to people is learn how to work with AI if you want to stay relevant. Learn not to fear AI. In fact, the biggest problem with AI is lack of AI. Okay, lack of AI in medicine, in um, medical research, that's, that's a problem. When I talk to people, it seems to me that people feel much more comfortable with AI in medical fields, in science fields, in engineering fields, in manufacturing, but they're less comfortable For example, when there is a human aspect, when machine need to tell me what disease I have, maybe the machine can identify the disease, but I'm not sure I want machine to tell me what is the disease. Well, there you need an emphatic machine. Exactly. You know, so, you know you're going to die tomorrow or something like that. Exactly. You, you I don't want, want machine to tell, tell me this. Don't anybody tell you that, but certainly not a machine. But there will come a time when this, the difference between person and machine will blur. Arthur, you know, we are getting into the end of uh, our conversation, and I'm interested. Are you optimistic about the future of humans' machines? Yes, yeah, certainly. Why are you optimistic? They will help us deal with the future, enable us to 
act on impending problems. Okay. And again, by that time, we will have merged with machines. So yes, certainly we will be at one with them and uh, creativity will be increased. And so in that way, we will be able to coexist with machines because we will be one of them. I mean, you don't, you don't have to go to Mars to uh, look at alien life forms. They're, they're developing right next to us. And the astonishing thing is that we're merging with them. Sounds like the beginning or the end of a science fiction book. <laughs> Arthur, I want to say big, big thanks for chatting with me again about AI and a creativity. We will make sure to add the show notes to the book, The Artist in the Machine, The World of AI, Power, Creativity. Continue following your work. Thank you very much, Nair. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great pleasure speaking with you. So until we merge with machines, learn how to work with them, and take this uh, optimistic message around AI and creativity and do not fear the machines. We have much more potential in collaboration, just as Artur mentioned and Lissidol mentioned in the movie. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. How do you feel after listening to this conversation? I remember that while I recorded this conversation, I was worried, anxious a bit. How can it be possible that machines will have emotions, that they will be creative more than humans? But after reflecting on the conversation with Arthur and remembering Lee Sidol's comment, I'm more optimistic. I know that I'm looking for ways to work with AI and see how we can create together. So the next time you get an email from me signed with an additional name, you might know I found my AI partner. Until I do, and you do, be well. Be creative. I will be waiting for you here with another episode of the Artian Podcast. With me, Nir Hindi. The sounds you heard in the background are taken from the AlphaGo movie. So far, we are producing our podcast without any help. Not an AI involvement. So if you find this podcast valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it really, really helps. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode. If you are interested in working with us and upskilling your team's capabilities, especially in an area where creativity and original thinking are required, which, as you already heard from Arthur, we will need, then I would recommend you to go and check our workshops and trainings, all available on our website. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us directly via email, podcast at theartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening.